thank you for joining us today. My name is Kalika Yap. I am part of the Mayor's AAPI Task Force, and I'm your podcast host for today's Asian American Stories Los Angeles AAPI Podcast. Today, we are focusing on the 1992 Los Angeles riots. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the 1992 riots. The LA riots, also known as the LA Uprising, is known in the Korean American community as Saigu, which translates directly to the month and year of the start of the civil unrest, which is April 29th. Mm-hmm. We're joined today by Hey Pen M, Naji Ali, and Reverend Dr. Mark Whitlock Jr. to reflect on race relations and the effects of the civil unrest. Hey Pen M is a former presidential appointee on the board of Corporation for America Corps and the founder and president of Faith and Community Empowerment, also known as FACE, a national nonprofit organization that aims to empower churches, nonprofits, and the Korean Asian American communities. Naji Ali is an activist, community organizer, founder, and executive director of Project Islamic Hope, as well as community relations manager for Operation Hope. And Dr. Reverend Mark Whitlock Jr. of Reed Temple, AME African Methodist Episcopal Church. So before getting to the LA riots, I'd love for each of you to give brief highlights of your organizations and how you got to your organizations. Hey, Pin, let's start with you. Sure. Um... Um, the acronym for our Faith and Community Empowerment is FACE, and we say we strive to bring the face of God through service and lift those who are faceless. Uh, we celebrate uh, 20 years of service, and actually our model came from First Amy Church, where Reverend Dr. Mark Whitlock uh, served uh, in charge of the economic development effort. And one of the things that I came to realize was that uh, during the LA riots, you know, our community was kicked down and crying alone. And the fact that there was no one there to cry with us was a big question for me. And I saw the model at First AME that really partnered with the broader community in all their community efforts. And I saw that the stakeholders really uh, wanted to uh, see the church succeed because of that partnership and it created mutuality. And I wanted to bring that model to our community as well. And we've had over 800 partners from White House to Fortune 500. And uh, we are leading a campaign called Saigu, uh, for which we've done for 20th, 25th, and now this year with a you know, coalition of multi-ethnic, multicultural leaders. Wonderful. How about you, Najee? Well, Operation Hope. Uh, was actually founded by our chairperson, John Hope Bryant, in 1992, uh, shortly after the civil unrest. Uh, and Operation Hope is one of the nation's largest nonprofits uh, with a goal of an economic empowerment and financial literacy. Uh, our chairman, John Hope Bryant, has been an advisor to uh, two U.S. presidents and as a presidential appointee himself by President uh, Bush and Obama. So uh, I'm just grateful to serve as the community relations ambassador uh, in LA uh, for Operation Hope and our chairperson, John Hope Bryant. And uh, it, Operation Hope's roots actually began at First Amy Church uh, with Pastor Cecil Chip Murray uh, and Pastor Mark Whitlock. Uh, John Hope Bryant uh, was a longtime member and its first supporters actually came from First Amity Church uh, with Pastor Whitlock uh, being a, uh, basically John Hope's 
Bryant's big brother. So I actually I wouldn't even be where I'm at had it not been for Mark Whitlock uh, way back when, 30 years ago, giving John Hope Bryant an assist in helping Operation Hope get started. Reverend. Thank you, Kalika. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you in the city of Los Angeles. And uh, I would have to say my colleague uh, colleagues, Haypen M and Najee Ali, I've known both of them well over 30 years now. And let me tell you, it is wonderful to uh, feel old in the presence of such young people. Uh, <laughs> um, I am formerly with First Amy Church under the leadership of Cecil Murray, had an opportunity to uh, govern the Fame Renaissance or Fame Assistance Corporation nonprofit uh, agency and for-profit company for uh, Fame Forever, where we uh, certainly work with the city of Los Angeles, then in the leadership of Tom Bradley, as well as Peter Uberoff at uh, Rebuild LA and had a chance to partner with uh, John Hope Bryan in Operation Hope. In fact, I was one of his first board members. And with Hey Penn's help, we were able to start a venture capital fund, loan funds, transportation programs, and others that help create jobs. Um, I have had an opportunity to receive a promotion, uh, and I'm in uh, Maryland now in what we call Prince George's County. We are one of the largest AME churches in the world, and I'm just grateful for everything I learned in Los Angeles. I do miss the weather. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, speaking of, quote, young people, there are a lot of young people that are listening to us, and this podcast is global. Does anyone want to give a brief history lesson on the 92 riots for a lot of the listeners who weren't even around? We're commemorating the 30 years. Who wants to take us? Stab at that. Okay. Uh, the, the old guy will try. It was um, actually 1991 when uh, Rodney King was uh, pulled over by the LAPD. And he may have been driving erratically. Uh, I think he was a little inebriated. And, uh, but he was poorly treated by the LAPD. Uh, we witnessed a video of him being severely beaten. Uh, by it just seemed like a, a whole football team full of big guys beating up on Rodney King with rocks, I mean, not rocks, but with sticks and tasers. And I happened to had an opportunity to meet George who videotaped that. Uh, and we watched that video every day almost. The news media picked it up and they kept running it and kept running it and kept running it. And eventually it did go to court four police officers are charged. Had a chance to meet two of them in the office of the First Day of Church. And I remember Cecil Murray and I meeting with Mayor Tom Bradley and um, uh, Assistant Chief Jesse Brewer, who's passed on now. Uh, Jesse, uh, Daryl Gates wouldn't meet with us. He, he refused. He arrogantly refused to meet with us. And um, then, of course, we heard the verdicts at the end of the trial. And it was a shock to everybody in the city of Los Angeles because all four police officers were found. Not, it was a shock. Four police officers found out. It was a shock. I was uh, volunteering for First Amy Church at the time, and I was working for a company called Chicago Title. I was closing a $50 million deal. And I was sitting in the boardroom, and I was the only black guy in the room. It's not something I'm proud about. I just happened to be I was the only black guy in the room. And everybody looked at me in, in almost horror when we saw those verdicts. Uh, when we heard those verdicts over the radio, I immediately went to First Amy Church 
me and Najee and others were someplace around and the place was packed. And Mayor Tom Bradley was there and Mark Ridley Thomas and so many other people gathered. News me media around the world. At the end of the service, uh, we went outside and the city was ablaze. Everything was being torn down. Buildings were being burned. The fire, the um, the uh, police department was under attack. Uh, it was uh, the largest civil unrest, some would call it right, in the history of the United States. Sixty people died. Um, $1 billion in damage, 50,000 jobs were lost. So it was a day that forever changed my life. I know we can add more to it, but it was the, the catalyst behind it, I believe, was the Rodney King case. And that's why we call it the Rodney King unrest. There were so many other things that happened around that same time. Uh, but in the, at the end of the day, the Rodney King challenge was a real challenge. We do know about the Sunja Du, and I'm sure Reverend uh, that uh, my, my, my minister, Najee Ali, can share about what the challenge was between Sunjadu and Latasha Harness. Would you like to pick that up, uh, Brother Najee Ali? Uh, thank you, Pastor Whitlock. And certainly, uh, as Pastor Whitlock so articulately stated, the history of the civil unrest and how it began. Uh, but I would be remiss if I did not mention, I believe that the precursor to the civil unrest was actually the tragic murder of Latasha Harlins, a 15-year-old African-American you know, young girl who was shot in the back of her head uh, over a bottle of orange juice uh, dispute with a Korean liquor store uh, owner, Soon Daju. Uh, Daju was convicted of Latasha's murder, but uh, was given probation by Judge Collins and not, uh, no jail time. So she didn't serve one day in jail the killing of this 15-year-old child uh, by shooting her in the back of her head on videotape. So uh, for many, that was something that uh, bothered us greatly and really tore our heart and soul out uh, when she was murdered. So once the King verdict uh, was announced and uh, the four officers were found not guilty for beating Rodney King, uh, that was simply, I believe, the straw that broke the camel's back. And the civil unrest uh, began uh, immediately in earnest uh, on April 29th, uh, 30 years ago. And um, to add to that, um, for the Korean community, uh, the Rodney King verdict was something that we all watched and were equally shocked uh, with the acquittal. Um, I know that there were some people who were aware that, who had been warned uh, by their Black friends that there might be a riot. But I believe for the vast majority of the Korean community, uh, they were shocked at what, what happened, um, but never in their imagination did they think that all that anger would be directed uh, towards the Korean community. And so out of all the businesses that were destroyed, 65% were Korean owned. Um, so that's 2,300 businesses and it's not just property, it's really their livelihood that translated in that destruction and devastation to, to suicides, marriage breakdowns, you know, dreams that were deferred or lost forever uh, because of uh, the devastation that occurred as well. And what is unfortunate is that um, the police failed to respond. I believe that if the police had done their job and the city leadership had done their job, um, yes, you know, um, there was anger 
but I believe that it would have been uh, contained. Uh, but instead, um, as the media continued to show the, uh, the exit of the police, um, it allowed for a lot of people to come in um, and loot and burn. Um, and so for the Korean community, it was a rude awakening that the police that's supposed to be there to serve and protect didn't necessarily apply to the Korean community. And in fact, there was a perimeter that the police created. So uh, anything Koreatown and below, <laughs> we were contained to ourselves, right? To just kind of duke it out amongst ourselves versus kind of the more well-off areas were protected. So uh, the Reverend mentioned that, you know, he went to the First Amy Church. Uh, where exactly were you? Can anyone else share or? I was at First Amy Church. Um, I had left my job. Um, I felt an overwhelming desire not, no longer to work for corporate America. And um, I went to First Amy Church, stayed there for exactly three to four days, didn't go home. Uh, my wife brought uh, clothing, um, was able to take a shower. And, um, you know, I, I think I never will forget Edward Almost, the actor who came in with his broom and his shovels and a group of Latino brothers and sisters to help clean up the city. It was there that we had Ted Koppel come in and, and just disgrace ABC television by saying gang members were not allowed into First Amy Church. It was there that I learned how deeply divided our city was. Uh, I remember having food lines and it, it weren't, it, First Amy Church is a large black church, uh, but the people who were looking for food were Asians, uh, whites, Jews, Latinos, and a sprinkling of African-Americans. And, and so for me, being a vice president then in, in corporate America, I, I, I did not know the poverty that exists. I knew about it statistically, but I did not know how it looked physically. And it, it, it was a mind-opening moment for me. For myself, um, I was a USC MBA student. And as a single Korean, uh, Koreatown was our playground. <laughs> um, however, I was also doing an internship as part of my MBA program down in Irvine. I lived in Bellflower. And um, it was devastating to, to see a place where just only a few nights before you were there doing your normal stuff. And then the next few days afterwards to feel unsafe. It felt very surreal. They, it, it definitely felt like a war zone. Um, and also during that season, um, beyond also the, the images of the media interviewing Korean store owners who are bawling and crying, uh, but not really necessarily having um, maybe individuals who could speak for our community and kind of all that anger directed and nothing to kind of help perhaps uh, push back the narrative in such a way uh, as well. I, I know that during that season, uh, coming home uh, after like group projects, um, I was living with my parents and the 10 p.m. Uh, Korean news would be on. And it felt during that season that I know it wasn't true, but it truly felt the way I'm feeling now as an Asian American living in America with the growing anti-Asian violence it felt that way back then that uh, it seemed like some Korean store owner was being shot or killed uh, from their customers. 
And I know that, uh, you know, between that 91 to 93 period, 17 or 19 Korean store owners were killed uh, by customers, but none of that ever got played in the media, right? And so as Reverend Mark Willock mentioned that there was the Rodney King that kept on being played like day in, day out. And then the pick, the also then the play of um, Soon Jadu, the Korean grocer, you know, shooting um, the Tasha Harlan's in the back, that clip, there was nothing before or after, but it's just that clip being played over and over again. And so it really, again, pitted our communities against one another when there's so many other dimensions of our communities where we do get along, uh, but in many ways, it our relationship, someone played the game and in, in, in essence, like capsulated it uh, into these two interactions, um, which I really believe flamed the anger and pitted us against one another. Yeah, I was uh, also uh, shocked at the verdict when it was announced. I happened to actually be on the campus of USC uh, visiting friends of mine in the athletic department and uh, stopped in the cafeteria to get something to eat and saw on the television monitor, the verdicts were uh, being announced and you could actually hear a pin drop in the student uh, union uh, where the TV monitors were uh, being shown. And once the verdicts were announced, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, uh, I was surrounded by mostly, you know, uh, white students and students uh, who were non-African-American and once the verdicts were announced, it seemed to be the students went back on with their lives, where uh, it was clear the verdict had no impact on them and how they felt in, in their lives. Uh, but for me, as the uh, African-American uh, young man who was there you know, witnessing this, uh, I was devastated and left campus immediately because I could not believe what I had just heard. Uh, so as I began to you know, drive, home uh, through South Central LA, I witnessed something I had never saw before. And that was the mothers and the grandmothers, you know, from the community out in the streets in front of their, their houses, uh, banging pots and pans in their way of protest. And that was the first sign that I knew that something much more deadly, much more devastating would more than likely happen as time went on that day. And sure enough, as I got home, uh, and cut the news on and saw the intersection of Florence normally live where uh, gang members uh, from that community uh, had pulled uh, a white <laughs> driver out of his truck named Reznor Denny and began to viciously assault him. In fact, uh, as we know that day, uh, many uh, people were assaulted and uh, someone spoke later on that day and said, essentially, if you were not African-American, uh, there was no compassion for anyone else that day in that particular neighborhood, in the intersection of Florence and Normandy. So uh, I just know that it was something that I will never forget in my lifetime. Uh, the civil unrest that began April 29th. Uh, but also uh, the good things that happened from there where we saw, you know, leadership from First Amy Church primarily uh, coming together and trying to offer uh, peaceful messages. And uh, I'm grateful you know, for that leadership that we saw and uh, the leadership that we've seen you know, 30 years later uh, with Hai Pan and her group face uh, being in the forefront and trying to bring us all together as one community. So uh, 
I'm just grateful you know, to, to have lived 30 years ago and saw what happened, but also 30 years later to see uh, the healing uh, that we all are trying to uh, embrace now. So thank you for allowing me to share that. You know, they say that there is power in the present, yet it's still so crucial to revisit the past. How have your feelings about the riots changed over the last 30 years? I'm no longer living in Los Angeles as of two and a half years ago, almost three now. And as I reflect on the 64 people that died, uh, that's just one too many, um, no matter what the racial breakdown was. Um, and as I look at the challenges of the separation between uh, the Asian community or the Korean community and the African-American community, yeah, I find it very depressing because once Hey Penn shared with me the economic realities that exist within the Korean community, I think we should have been in solidarity. I, I remember when the Crips and the Bloods came together and held hands across Watts. It should have been the Blacks and the Koreans coming together because we were in the same uh, hole. We were in the same tar patch. And unless we begin to deal with that, uh, then we will get caught up in what the media has described as this racial tension between the Asian and the African-American community. Truth is, we were all Black on that day, but we were all Korean on that day. And, and, and we don't like to deal with that because I think this racial superiority that we all want to reflect on would suggest that one is superior to the other, where reality is that we're all uh, the same under the skin. And so what I learned from Hey Penn was the deep pain and the deep challenges and the deep or struggles that my that my Korean brothers and sisters went through. And I was so happy to learn that. Uh, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from St. Louis. So it's really just black and white. I, you know, I didn't know what a taco was until I came to California. <laughs> Did not know what 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 sushi or anything else, Kenji. I, I didn't know, you know, and, and I'm happy to now know. <laughs> that there are different types of food than Burger King and McDonald's and White Castles. But what I had to learn was the cultural differences, the language differences, the religious differences, how we communicate differently, uh, an entrepreneurial-based mindset versus a job-seeking mindset. How do we sacrifice to make it? How African-Americans have always had a voice to speak up, but my Asian brothers and sisters, particularly my Korean brothers, they've silenced and struggled to make it. And they often suffer in silence where we as African-Americans have learned in the 60s and the 70s, we need to talk or we need to burn, baby, burn in 1965. Well, my, as I talked to Hey Pen, and I said, Hey Pen, the things that we've learned is if a person steps on your shoe, you shout. And you make sure you get somebody's attention. And so for me, uh, we as an older American, I'm 67, be 68 in a few weeks, uh, I got to teach. And my teaching is with my with my sister, Hey Pen. Hey Pen, don't let nobody pull your rug out from under you because you're not meant to be walked on or pulled out or struggled with. You know, you need to speak up and speak up loudly, especially if somebody is misrepresenting who you are. And so that's what I've learned from the night. That's what I learned in 1992. I'm unapologetically black. Um, I, I am unapologetically black, but I'm not blind to the other problems that exist within our community. I think we have more in common than we do in contrast. Defining your voice and using your voice. Well, I would agree with everything that uh, Pastor Whitlock uh, has articulated. Uh, 
instated. Uh, me personally, you know, 30 years ago, April 29th, and I'll just be, you know, very honest and transparent and authentic that uh, when the civil unrest began, I was essentially indifferent. I didn't care that Koreatown was burning at all. Because uh, in my heart, in my soul, my heart had been ripped out uh, by Latasha Allen's murder by a Korean American merchant uh, and uh, someone who's actually friends, you know, with the Rodney King family as well as the Latasha Harlan's family. And I was actually in the courtroom with the Harlan's family as a young activist that no one had ever heard of, but I was in the courtroom with the family. And to see how the Korean American community actually rallied in support of the killer of Latasha Harlan's, where they raised money for a legal defense fund to pay her lawyer. Uh, raise funds and were there in support for her in the courtroom. Uh, so once April 29th came and the verdict was announced, uh, we saw firsthand that many Black people went to Koreatown intentionally, didn't care about looting or stealing anything, but it was the property damage and the fires that were set through the destruction of these businesses to interrupt their livelihood. Uh, that was in direct response to uh, Latasha's murder because our perception was it was really an act of war uh, against Black people when this, uh, one of our children was murdered. Mm-hmm. And 30 years later, I've not said this, I'll say it again, you know, Black people had a right to be angry at Latasha Holland's murder. But what, what we did have a right to do was turn against our fellow Angelino and cause property damage and destruction to their community. Uh, so. I've learned a lot in 30 years. Uh, certainly, I think I've grown and I've evolved to be a peacemaker, someone who's calling for unity. And that's the lesson I've learned 30 years later, that uh, what we did and what, what happened to the Korean American community and the businesses uh, was just simply wrong. And I apologize you know, for my role in not calling for unity you know, publicly. I'll say it again on this videotape. Uh, but certainly, uh, we made serious mistakes in how we handled it and what we didn't do in calling for more unity in the streets mm-hmm. that uh, was needed uh, by voices who did have influence uh, with young people in the community. So, uh, as I said, I've, I've learned, I've grown, and 30 years later, I'm all about unity. I'm all about healing. And that's why, as I said it once, I'll say it again, I appreciate you know, Hey Pan and her leadership in reaching out to us and bringing this community together for uh, healing of uh, this still needed 30 years later. Uh, so thank you for allowing me to share, you know, my perspective. Gosh, I want to cry. <laughs> thank you to both of you. Um, I know that I have journeyed uh, very closely uh, with Reverend Mark Whitlock and also with Naji and his friendship. I remember for the 25th, he pulled me out uh, for to do a Facebook Live with Soledad O'Brien. I remember that with the National Geographic mm-hmm. on the LA Riot um, as well. And it's invited me to so many other places. Um, I think for me, uh, as mentioned, in 92, I was a young single lady, right? Um, I do clearly remember though going to the Oprah Winfrey show. So I was involved with KAC, kind of like the NAACP for the Korean community. And um, 
you know, what I remember, I have to still see the show clip, but, you know, Oprah turned around and asked the Korean community to say a few words. And I believe that they wanted to, you know, extend the olive leaf. And so in that way, they mentioned, you know, we know that there were certain things that we have done wrong that we could improve um, and they were going to continue. <laughs> but they never got that uh, because the leaders from the black community said absolutely right. And then they just went on a tirade. And I just remember experiencing erasure, right, or being silenced. And so, again, I really appreciate Reverend Mark Whitlock you know, his encouragement. He even told me after the Atlanta massacre, right? When he reached out to say, how can I help? He said, you just have to be an angry Asian woman <laughs> and just get your voice out there, right? So again, just, <laughs> um, but I truly do appreciate the allyship, especially again, this past year, particularly with the Atlanta massacre that the leaders from the black community really came out strong. Uh, to push back the narrative uh, in terms of the police and other le leadership uh, blaming um, and vilifying the victims um, and really, again, helping to um, be a champion for the Asian community. And as I've mentioned in many other forums, for me, um, you know, my organization really came from the model that I witnessed with Reverend Mark Whitlock at First Amy. And as mentioned, our organization has gone to so many different places from the White House, the United Nations and such. And I've been a beneficiary of the kind of mentorship that I received from Reverend Mark Willock and so many other leaders, um, as well as friendships like with Najee that has opened doors for me. Um, and so um, in that note, whenever we would have these conversations about the LA riots um, and the relationship between Korean store owner and uh, black customers, um, although subsequently the Ferguson and the Baltimore riots again show that it's not just limited Korean, but just really Asian store owners in general, um, I would experience a certain level of pain because uh, whenever there was story about the devastation of these store owners, the very leaders that, again, that I appreciate, respected, and I knew in my heart that they were good people and would normally respond with empathy. Uh, instead, they would have this hard look on their face um, and make comments that really um, seem to minimize uh, the pain, in fact, vilify the store owners. And particularly Reverend Mark Willock, as mentioned, he is someone that has been a mentor in so many ways, um, but I felt unsafe in bringing this topic up because for me, my end goal was that if and when we brought this topic up, that it would lead to a better relationship and not the other way. Uh, but I just didn't have that confidence that it would, it would lead to better. I thought it would lead to worse. And it was during the Atlanta massacre, as mentioned, that he reached out and it led to some certain uh, conversations uh, that really led to uh, Reverend Mark Willock even doing an op-ed that said Asian lives matter. But part of the thing that I've learned along this journey was that the question of why are these very good people responding inconsistently to the way that I know they would normally respond. And instead of vilifying them or dismissing them, because I cared, and I care to be in relationship, I really try to seek understanding. And in that way, I came to realize that there was a certain narrative that 
keeps being told about these store owners that vilify them. And so, you know, when you do violence on evil, you know, you're a hero. I mean, if I'm a robber, I'm a hero, right? Um, and so for me, the last 30 years, especially the last 20 years through our Saigu campaign, uh, which we've, you know, reclaimed the word to say, serve, advocate, inspire, give, and unite campaign. And we brought a coalition of multi-ethnic, multicultural leaders to really commemorate. But it, another goal was to create bridges of understanding um, that these store owners are not exploiting or profiteering. Uh, typically, they make less than two to $3,000 after expense, but before payroll. And that's supposed to cover four people's payroll. Even for one person, two to 3,000 is like pitiful nothing. But if you're supposed to cover four people, that just makes no sense. It's unsustainable. Um, in addition, um, they, uh, it is a very dangerous job. Uh, Reverend Mark Whitlock said he worked at 7-Eleven the other day. And it's a dangerous job, right? Um, after taxi driver, it is number two in being killed while working on your job, in your job. Right. So here are these individuals risking their life, you know, making pitiful nothing. Um, and so for many of them, they're really just not so much they're racist. Yes, there are racists in all our communities, but for many of them, it's not so much out of racism, but of lived trauma. You know, uh, when they're being shoplifted, when they're being assaulted, being held at gunpoint, and they're just trying desperately to try to hang on to what little they can. Um, I just cannot imagine a, a store owner wanting <laughs> to go and follow customers around in a store. Um, now, does it excuse them? No, it doesn't excuse them. I mean, as if I'm a customer, I want to come into a store and be treated with dignity. Right. So it doesn't excuse their behavior, but at least, you know, we, uh, there could be a better understanding of why they behave the way they're behaving and then find better solutions for it. Right. Versus just yelling at them when they're in an economic wheelchair. You know, it's like yelling at someone in a wheelchair to jump. It just is kind of stupid and futile. Um, and to, again, come up with different solutions and better solutions. And so that's part of been my um, desire is that, aha, the last 30 years, in many ways, um, the efforts around relieving the tension between Black community and Asian community around store, you know, interactions um, has been just like yelling at someone in a wheelchair without knowing that, yelling at them to jump you know, without knowing they're in a wheelchair. It just kind of, it doesn't lead to tangible, real solutions. Um, and so part of the work that I've been doing is to foster understanding. And I'm so grateful again to Reverend Mark Willock, Najee, that they really, you know, open their eyes to those data points, but they also then really open their hearts, you know, to really, again, stand in unity. And so for me, you know, um, for those of you who've seen the Squid Game, you know, the game board was set up, right, by the master game, you know, game master. Um, and it was rigged in such a way that even longtime friends, right, betrayed one another and hurt each other. Um, but at the very end, when it really counted, they decided to make their own rules and not play by the game and the rules 
that was set by the game master. And that's part of my desire is by opening our eyes that this game board has been rigged <laughs> to hurt one another and to just, you know, what is it? Open our eyes to that truth and to be able to then um, stand in unity, join forces because each of our communities have wonderful gifts and resources and connections and, you know, intelligence. And why not put all our energy together, right? To fight the system, fight the policies um, and make it a better place for all of us. I, I think Kpin raises a great point um, because while we worked together for a number of years and we did some good things together, measurable stuff, I still did not know her story. It's because I'd been you know, so caught up in my own story, didn't know hers. Didn't pay much of attention to it. We just worked together. We didn't know anything about each other. But when she shared her story, I remember her crying and her fear in sharing the story and how she did not want to lose the relationship she had with me. I mean, she and I have gone to Israel together, uh, had a good time there. And uh, we went with the, I think the Jewish Federation. Am I right about that, April? Yes. And, and you even toasted at my wedding. I and, I hosted you, and, I, and I have never turned down a speaking engagement. And you spoke at my church. Amen. But she never shared her story. So we create our own story. And, and I think often African-Americans take Asian-Americans for granted. Because we don't know the story. We, we, we know what we saw in, in, in what was it, uh, the television. We see the perfect Asian or the motto Asian, and we think, okay, everything's good, right? Um, and then we look at our own lives and say, everything's bad, right? And until we hear the story, then we make up our own narrative. You're right. I worked in the 7-Eleven for exactly two weeks. It was the biggest mistake I ever made. I felt dangerous. I would come in at five o'clock in the morning, and at, I think whatever time they start selling liquor uh, alley, the store would be packed and everybody was coming in there for that Thunderbird. And I knew I could not make a mistake. Otherwise I was going to get shot. <laughs> so we don't, well, we hear about the, the, we don't hear about the Asian shootings. Neither do you hear about the black shootings that take place in them stores. I'm just letting you know it, it's a dangerous neighborhood. So please know it comes with, the, it comes with, with the territory. But my point is when she told me the story, I said, it's time to write an article. And I wrote an article that Asian lives matter. And she said, aren't you going to get in trouble? I said, no, because your story is our story. And unless we tell the story, then we're going to continue to live in ignorance. I think the challenge is we have to be, we have to take the risk, as James Cone would say, we have to take the risk of faith, stop smiling at each other and start telling the story. Once we tell the story, I think we will come together. Did now, now will everybody accept it? I, I know I got some good friends. I ain't gonna call their name, but they say, you know, I, I didn't know that and I don't really care. I'm so caught up in my own life. But a few of us who really do care and believe in what Dr. Martin Luther King talked about, and that's creating the beloved community. The only way to get rid of darkness is to bring some light to it. The only way to get rid of hate is to bring some love to it. And if we don't do that, then that which took place in 1992 will take place. While I don't agree with you, Najee, completely, 
I, I think it was the Rodney King issue. And I think it was the way the police treated black men. And I think it was the way the police uh, did not do well. So I'm, I'm with NWA. So, uh, and that's how I feel. Um, because I just didn't think that much about the Korean community. And I was stuck in downtown Los Angeles, working as a vice president of a financial institution. So I don't think about that, but I did get pulled over by the police on a regular in a suit and tie. I was mistreated. I was not, not, I know I lost my dignity a couple of times. So I know I've had that experience, but I haven't had the same experience that some people had uh, as my sister uh, Latasha Harlan said, because I, I lived in a, I lived in View Park. I lived in in the Negro rich people place. <laughs> I did. I, I, I'm sorry. My house was a lot of money, so I didn't have those issues. I didn't have those issues, but I did have the problem with the police. And and I do want to say that going back with Latasha and Sunja Du, I know that whenever the riots do. The story is told that Korean community and Latasha, that story is superimposed. Um, so it seems to ride with us regardless. Um, and so for me, after 30 years, there are certain additional elements that I learned about the, the trauma impact environment uh, for Sunja Du. And again, it doesn't justify what happened. You know, if, if a wife kills her husband after years of abuse, it still doesn't justify her killing. Right. But at the same time, that perhaps um, understanding the environment in which she had to endure uh, may be able to save other women from what is it using that as their solution. Um, and so for around Latasha Harlan and Sunja Du, I learned in the, the, the trial case notes that before that event, that she had experienced over 40 shoplifting incidents a week. And if you're netting two, $3,000, you know, every dollar is a life or death. And even for me, once a week, I think would be traumatizing, but 40 times a week would be even at a whole different level. But beyond that, she had been threatened. Um, basically, they've been burglarized 30 times. They've been uh, threatened of their stores being burned down. <clears throat> 20 times, and her son's life had been threatened by gang members of, of being killed uh, because he was going to be uh, a witness um, against one of the gang members uh, for robbing their store. So again, it does not justify what happened. And, you know, um, I, I made it a point to think about Latasha Harlan's in a different way this year, where I just removed the color. And I just thought if my cousin, because I had the opportunity to connect with Shanice, um, Latasha Harlan's cousin, if my cousin had walked into a store, regardless how they had behaved, right? Uh, if, I had, if I learned that um, she had got, they had gotten killed and shot and killed, um, it, it would just be inexplicable and horrifying. Um, and, and also, again, the history of where uh, people of color, but especially black community, where uh, they have been told over and over again that their bodies, you know, their lives don't matter, right? And to get a sentencing, literally, you know, back to back of Rodney King and just the acquittal of the police officers, and then again uh, with Sunja Du, 
um, the anger, even at a even at a greater level, um, is something that uh, I think we would all feel, uh, regardless, um, as well. Um, again, but at the same time, if our community is to heal and go forward, I think understanding the trauma that these store owners face, as well as the trauma that many of the people who live in these neighborhoods face, right? Again, the game board has been set uh, in such a way that we are fighting over crumbs. And I would really like to, uh, again, help us say, hey, screw this game board, <laughs> screw this game. You know, let's, let's um, fight together, right? To again, change policies that will allow us to have greater wealth, greater opportunities. Black and Korean home ownership rate is the same across the country. I think people are shocked. Um, and really there's seven Asian groups that are subgroups that are below the black home ownership rate and actually 14 that are below the Hispanic home ownership rate. And so again, you know, let's, uh, what's the word, open the curtain? Is that the right word? <laughs> uh, there's a phrase, but at the end of the day, like this racist system doesn't discriminate who they discriminate against. And again, and so I would love to have our both communities and not just black and Korean or Asian. I think we're all guilty of telling myths about one another that in many ways vilifies the other, right? As Reverend Mark Willock said, when you don't know each other and when you don't know the truth, we're more likely to say ill of one another versus saying wonderful things of one another. Najee, I think you have something to say. <laughs> no, I'm listening to you and Reverend Whitlock. I'm just so honored to you know, be a part of this discussion. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm just really committed to continuing uh, this path of unity uh, and peace and understanding uh, between both uh, the Korean and African-American uh, community. Uh, so I, I'm just sitting here, you know, amazed at how much I, I'm, I'm learning. So thank you, you both, you know, because I've learned a lot by, by listening. And I've just been always moved and touched by you, Najee. And like I said, uh, for you to be able to speak and acknowledge the pain of the Korean community on behalf of the Black community, um, at the mayor, at the press conference where there was mayor and all the different media. I think, again, that is an astronomical gift that you gave to our community. And well, I just want to say thank you. Oh, no. I mean, honestly, uh, it was long overdue. And it took me some years to get to that point, you know, full disclosure. Uh, but certainly, uh, I spoke from my heart, uh, no matter how angry Black people were about Latasha Hollins and the King verdict. You know, we had no right to turn against uh, the Korean American community or any other community uh, with anger and, and violence. Uh, so with that, you know, I apologize. And hopefully that young people who hear my voice will not make the same tragic mistakes that you know we made 30 years ago. So hopefully this won't happen again because now we have friendships with the Korean American community. Uh, that are true friendship, not this make-believe, you know, uh, friendship every few years. We're going to you know sing Kumbaya, uh, but we work <laughs> consistently uh, to support each other, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm just grateful, you know, for your friendship in the high pan and uh, the mentorship and then brotherhood that Reverend Whitlock has given me uh, the last 30 years, you know, when he met me when I was fresh out of prison. And I came to First AME looking for love anything, brotherhood, and uh, Pastor Murray, 
uh, reached out to me, uh, told me, hey, here's Mark Whitlock. You know, you hang with Mark. And I've been hanging with Mark Whitlock, you know, my entire life, uh, 30 years later. <laughs> you know, our, our experiences make who we are. We're the sum total of every experience we've had. And to know Najee Ali is to love him. He he often uh, has spoken up for people who had no voice, had no representation, had no one there to stand. I can't remember how many press conferences I've been with Najee uh, in Lamert Park, where maybe one camera may show up, and there are hundreds of cameras. But my point is, he's been on the battlefield, uh, and so when it comes to someone who doesn't get paid money to do what he does, he just does it. And uh, that's what you love about him. I, I'm fairly close to John Bryan of Operation Hope. And both of us feel the same way about Najee Ali. Uh, that brother's got it going on. You know, it, it, it's one guy who can uh, give a speech. And some of us are good speech givers. That's why I get paid. I get paid to give speeches because I'm a pastor. But it's better to see a speech than to hear a speech. And my brother Najee. He's not one of them speech givers. He can talk okay, but he does the work. And if we had more people doing the work, we would have less 1992 unrest. Amen to that. Amen to that. <laughs> so there are a lot of young people you had mentioned earlier, Naji. You know, what advice could you give to individuals, Koreans, Blacks, communities of color to help forge race relations? Well, I'd say the best advice. I can give is telling my own story and the mistakes I made 30 years ago. That way young people won't have to repeat the same mistakes uh, that I had uh, as far as being intolerant and not caring about uh, my fellow Angelino. So what I want to do now is work, keep working with other leaders. And uh, we had a good meeting earlier this week at City Hall uh, with the city's Human Relations Commission as well as Civil Rights Commission led uh, by Capri Maddox, uh, my big sister. And uh, the point is we talked about having summer exchange programs with young people, students from South Central LA, uh, Black and Latino would go to Koreatown and uh, Koreatown students would come to South Central LA and spend time where we can show them and talk to them about our communities. And that way that can at least start having a dialogue with young people that can foster uh, understanding and tolerance uh, for each other. And that way, uh, the mistakes that happened 30 years ago won't happen in the future. Both communities know each other. And I believe it all starts with the youth, the young people knowing each other and becoming friends. Thank you so much for uh, this wonderful, truthful, vulnerable conversation to discuss race, racial relations and the 30th anniversary of the Los Angeles riots. Does anyone want to just say like how they can get involved with your organization? They can first visit our website, facela.org, F-A-C-E-L-A.org. Uh, first, I want to extend an invite to everyone uh, to join our campaign, Serve, Advocate, Inspire, Give, and Unite campaign. We're having our uh, event April 29th, this Friday, um, and it's free to everyone. And uh, we're going to be honoring Reverend Mark Woodlock as one of our heroes of hope uh, not just, <laughs> uh, for his leadership, but amongst a few others that have really, again, contributed to what LA, the best of what LA can be. Uh, we also have Najee Ali. Uh, we are going to have more of this type of fireside chat. The pursuit of 
healing and solidarity. Uh, and we have also uh, a person named Joanna Sweat with Common Defense. Uh, she's half African-American, half Korean. Um, and she leads um, one of the leading uh, veterans, progressive veterans organization, and really about empowering, again, uh, communities of color as well. Uh, so again, go to our website and vote. I'm saying not vote, go to our uh, website and find the details. It will be downtown Los Angeles. But also uh, one last piece, you know, one of the things I learned again through First Amy is about the power of partnership and about telling your story and shining your light. Um, you know, one example that I do want to finish with is Susan Boyle from Britain's Got Talent. In many ways, I think communities of color and underserved communities are dissed just like Susan Boyle when she first came on. But that platform, allowed her singing and her gift to be visible to the rest of the world. And as soon as she opened her mouth with that platform and that mentorship, her gift allowed uh, for her life to be blessed, but to bless the world as well. And so I believe that all of us, <laughs> we need to all learn how to shine our light, how to show up, right? And how to partner. Um, and so we have a wonderful program called the C2 Leadership. We have one for young people. We have one for older adults. If you can't afford the tuition, you could become an intern and we'll cover it. <laughs> and so I really want to encourage everyone to join uh, as well. So again, www.facela.org. And uh, I'm easy to find as well. Uh, OperationHope.org. OperationHope.org is the website. Uh, and you can take advantage of our services and programs we offer. And if anyone wants to reach me personally, najiali.com uh, is my personal website. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So I'm easy to find and willing to help uh, do anything that's needed and asked of me to make uh, our city better. So thank you for uh, allowing me this space and platform to share. I'm at Reed Temple. I serve as pastor of Reed Temple in uh, Glendale, Maryland. Uh, you can certainly con contact with me at my email, markw at readtemple.org. I also consult for the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture on the campus of USC. And so uh, if anyone ever has an interest in uh, getting in contact with me at USC, where well, I'm a great graduate, amen, I love it, amen. Uh, please know that we'd love to have you and I'd love to get in contact with you. Markw at readtemple.org. Thank you so much, all of you, for your time and helping us honor and remember the 30th anniversary of the LA riots. Really Thank appreciate you, your Talika. time. <laughs> Thank you, Malika. You did a great job. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Los Angeles Asian American Stories. You can follow AAPILA on Facebook at AAPI Los Angeles and on Instagram at AAPI underscore LA. You can find me, Kalika Yap, on Instagram and Twitter at Kalika Yap. We appreciate you being part of our community. Thank you.